Chatting with Sherry is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They have been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for their creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Today we welcome author Greg Hickey. He has a new series of books. Uh, the first one is The Friar's Lantern. And he's going to be chatting about that and how he came about writing the series and a bunch of other interesting things. Uh, this is a recorded interview, so please don't call in. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sherry. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm happy to have you. Uh, how's the weather in the Midwest? Um, it's been nice this week, in the past couple of weeks. Finally starting to warm up. It looks like summer might be here and hopefully to stay. Um, but in Chicago, we usually can expect one or two more 40-degree days at the end of May or early June. So we're hoping that won't be the case this year, but for right now it's been nice and sunny um, and a little bit of rain every now and then, which is good for us. Um, my wife just started planting a, some gardens, so we had good weather, I think, for the last few weeks to start growing some vegetables. Oh, that's cool. So your wife's a gardener. Are you a gardener, too? Um, I am more of a dirt hauler and manual labor type person. She's the one with the green thumb. Uh, I see. Here, over here, put this over here, please. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm more of a, I have a brown thumb. Stinky <laughs> plants a lot. I'm more of an animal person. My mom was a plant person. My okay. grandma and grandpa were plant people, but not me. I kill them. Yeah, this is our first year doing it. We just moved from a condo to a house um, in November. So newbies at this, but so far so good. We've been able to harvest um, some vegetables already. I think that's really cool, though. I, 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 th I love fresh garden stuff. Um, when I lived, I'm I'm in San Diego now, but I was raised in LA. And when we lived in LA, we used to have three trees: lemon trees, peach tree, lemon tree, peach tree. Can't remember what the third one was. Uh, um, oh, oranges. Oh, great! So it was yeah, like we fresh off the tree. right. So it was like we didn't have was that was the six last stuff off our grocery bill. Uh, <laughs> But it was great. Yeah, and flowers. Yeah, does, does your wife do flowers as well as veggies? Uh, she's done a few flowers, um, just kind of around the beds we have and a few pots on the side, but and mostly vegetables and we've got some strawberries going too. Oh, that's interesting. Is it good weather for strawberries there? Um, I think they really won't start taking off until it gets a little bit warmer. Um, we've got one plant that we bought that was um, had grown a little bit, and we planted a few seeds. So, you know, one's obviously a little bit farther along. I think probably June, July is when we'll start harvesting. And I guess once you plant strawberries, um, they come back the following year. So I think it'll be easier next year to harvest strawberries a little bit earlier. Because they take root, right? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, you could have, what's the other one that's like a ground plant that does that? It's, 
It's like, it's a fruit, but I can't remember. It's another one that you plant it and it takes root. I don't know. I'm learning all this as I go. This is all very new to me. I think it's raspberries. I think that's what it is. Okay. But, yeah, it, it, there's a few of those. Not that many, but there are a few that once you plant it, you can't get rid of them. Right. So, are you were, are you a reader now, and were you a reader when you were a little kid? Yes, both. Um, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, and we were in kind of like in-between designated suburbs. So we didn't really have access to a library. We, we, I mean, we go to the library, but we had to pay an extra fee to be members. It wasn't part of our uh, um, part of our town. So at some point, my mom told us, you know, it's not worth it to pay these library fees anymore. So um, if you want a book, we'll just go and buy one. Because um, I think you know the library was just that inconvenient for us. But we definitely got a. Um, our money's worth it. Borders when Borders was still around buying books when I was growing up. I loved Borders. I thought Borders was terrific. I spent yeah. a lot of time there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as much as I like Borders, it, it is nice being in Chicago um, because there are so many more small independent bookstores. And those are fun just to kind of deal with feel of the community around it. Um, they're great for author readings and author events. You know, it's nice to be there and walk around among those stacks is not, you know, not this overwhelming uh, chain store like a Borders or Barnes & Noble, so those are great, too. Yeah, I, I understand. We Well, when I lived in L.A., we had a lot of the smaller stores. They were great. Yeah. Uh, there's one or two here, not that many. So, oh, really? Yeah. No, there's a really good science fiction store, and there's a oh. um, mystery store, and that's it, really. Of the smaller stores. Yeah. And I sort of disappointed by that. <laughs> Cause I'm used I'm used to being able to go to different like different places and a bunch of little stores, but we don't have that. Right. What yeah. um when you were a kid, what books did you read? Did you read different like were you did you start reading something like a certain genre and then stay with it, or did you uh, move around to different things? How, what kind of a uh, book-reading kid were you? <laughs> I definitely bounced around. Um, I read a lot of like sports books, sports fiction books. Um, there was one or two authors that had you know, big, long series of kids playing a you know, variety of different sports. I think I burned through all those. Um, I liked science fiction a lot. I liked, I liked a little bit of fantasy. Um, and then, you know, my mom was always trying to get me to read the award-winning books. So I read, like, The Giver and uh, all the Newbery Medal winners and stuff like that. So, very um, diverse reading as a kid. And I guess that it's kind of continued into adulthood. Yeah, I bounce around myself. I don't, I've never stuck... I, I, I do like certain genres, but, yeah, I've never stuck to one thing. I, I, in fact, I will go from a mystery to a science fiction book to a biography to a fantasy to a very serious dramatic book to a really ridiculous silly book. I mean, I, it's whatever takes my fancy. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's nice to kind of have that balance, especially when you're 
you know, if you're reading something that's a little more dense, it's nice to have a, a, a break and read something a little bit lighter or a little more genre focused. This is something a little less literary. Do you have a favorite author, or is that a silly question? <laughs> um, it's not a silly question, but I I think the books that always stick with me the most and the books that I kind of return to are books that tell a great story, but they also deal with some weightier ideas. So uh, stuff like George Orwell or Ayn Rand, where she's dealing with a particular philosophy, or Albert Camus, um, authors that are kind of addressing bigger questions about the world, but, you know, they're also writing great books that you can pick up and are not a chore to read. Um, and who was your hero when you, uh, did you start writing as a child, and who was your hero as you started writing as a child, if you, if, whenever you started writing? <laughs> I, I mean, my, the moment I started is kind of when I, became a writer was I remember I was in I think seventh grade and I wrote this short story for English class. It was about a cruise ship that wrecked on a desert island deserted island and the passengers were all stranded there and it was kind of a lore of the fly situation. And for growing ups, you know, they had to figure out how to survive and get along and, and all that. Um, and my teacher enjoyed it and I think I read it in class and my classmates enjoyed it. And I liked the process of writing it, like storytelling. So I decided that over the following summer, I was going to sit down and turn this, you know, five-page story into a, a full novel. So I had really grand intentions. Um, unfortunately, I think after a week or so of sitting in my parents' basement, um, when it was nice outside and all my friends were outside playing and I was inside plugging away at, at our old computer, I decided I really didn't want to be a summer novelist. <laughs> So I gave that up pretty gave that up pretty quickly, um, and I don't know that I had a sort of literary hero at that point. Um, but when I was in high school, I took my uh, creative writing class, um, and I think that teacher is really the person that kind of got me focused on writing, um, writing different styles, and really encouraged the, the work I was doing, and made me feel like this is something I wanted to do for the long term, and something that I could find pleasure in and That's always helpful, um, that somebody encourages you. Were your parents encouraging? Yeah, definitely. Um, they told me they didn't know where uh, my interest came from. Um, my parents and my brother are both are all mathematically money finance oriented. Um, they all got master's degrees in some form of finance. Uh, MBAs, Master of Finance, etc. Um, I'm the only one who, you know, for the most part has delved into more creative pursuits, although my brother has started doing that um, in the last few years. Um, and I was also the only one that had any interest in science. Um, so my parents always say they don't really know where I got those interests <laughs> from. You plucked it out time. of the atmosphere. <laughs> Any scientist, like, um, is it astronomy or is it um, physics or what's the science that you're interested in? 
I'm actually a forensic scientist by day um, and an author by lunch breaks, weekends, evenings, whenever I have time. So I work for the Illinois State Police, and they have several labs throughout the state. I work in their laboratory in Chicago. Um, and I work in the firearms section of our laboratory, which means that I analyze guns and bullets and cartridge cases from crime scenes. So obviously in Chicago, there's a fair amount of that kind of crime, so we do get a fair amount of evidence coming in. Um, and it's my job to try to help the police make sense of what happened whenever a shooting occurs. So you're my go-to guy if I want to, and well, I am in the middle of writing mur murder mystery. I can go to you and ask you questions for my murder mystery because you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Actually, I was, the part of my job is that I have to testify in court occasionally. So, you know, when I put out a report and the police use it to um, arrest and maybe eventually put a suspect on trial, I'd probably want to go and testify at that trial. Um, and I was testifying in a case uh, downstate in Illinois, um, and when I finished testifying, uh, you know, I walked out of the courtroom, I was about to leave, and the attorney who had put me on came out and said, well, hold on a second, the judge wants to talk to you. And I thought, oh my God, what did I do, what did I say? <laughs> um, so I, you know, I had to wait around for 15, 20 minutes until the judge finished up, finished up with um, whatever else was going on after after I was off the stand. And you know, finally the judge came out, and he called me back to his chambers, and he said, you know, I'm an author and I'm writing this book and, you know, I need to know is this gun something that would be used and what would a bullet look like that came from that gun and, and so forth. So, so that was pretty cool. I was sitting down and talk with him about both about writing and about my day job. So you didn't get in trouble. <laughs> I did not get in trouble, no. <laughs> That's kind of cool. That's really cool. Yeah, so far so good. I've not, not gotten in trouble at, at court. So hopefully that continues. So what do you think of the portrayal, because actually it's almost in every mystery, of forensic science in different TV shows and movies? Um, you know, I haven't watched a lot of forensic shows. I watched, I've seen a few episodes of CSI, and for the most part I think they do a pretty good job with forensics. Um, I think the biggest differences are that I don't ever go to a crime scene. There are a few laboratories around the country where forensic scientists move in and out of the lab and go to crime scenes and bring evidence back to the lab. But for the vast majority of us, if you're a forensic scientist, you stay in the laboratory and it's police officers who go to the crime scene to collect evidence and bring it into the laboratory. Um, it's very rare for one of our cases to be wrapped up in 45 minutes or <laughs> however long it takes us. CSI. Yeah. Um, so I think they they kind of speed up the process a little bit to you know make it more palatable for viewers. And the forensic scientists on TV don't have to do any paperwork, which would be nice for me, but unfortunately that's not the case. So do detectives come and ask you about cases that they're investigating? Are you allowed to answer those kind of questions? Yes, we are. Um, I don't usually have a ton of uh, direct communication with detectives. Usually what will happen is um, a detective will submit evidence and with that will come some paperwork with the detective will say, you know, I recovered this bullet and a uh, gun from a crime scene. Can you tell me if this bullet was fired from, from this gun? And so that's 
that's usually kind of the extent of my communication with the detective. If I have specific questions about a case, I'll give the detective a call or send him an email. Uh, um, but a lot of times, you know, we know, or I know, based on what's coming in the door, what I need to do with the evidence. Um, well, communication is a little more limited too than what we see on TV. Well, I was actually thinking you're private detectives. Do you ever, are you allowed well, to talk to private detectives? Because in TV shows, the coroner is always talking to the private detectives. <laughs> no, I've never, I've never been contacted by a private detective. Um, and I actually, I, I don't know to what extent they would be involved in a lot of the cases that we handled. Because pretty much anything that would be involved as physical evidence at a crime scene would be collected by a police department sent to us. I don't, so I'm having a hard time imagining like at what point a, a private detective would get his or her hands on physical evidence from a crime scene. You haven't watched some murder mysteries, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. They happen a lot. Um. <laughs> My impression is like, yeah, the, the, you know, the private detective in, in murder stories will be asking a lot of questions of maybe people who have done analysis, but they won't be necessarily bringing in their own physical evidence. Okay. Because um, there's some murder mystery shows that I like that they're always like talking to forensic scientists or coroner and asking them all kinds of questions. They Or they bring something and they're asking how this works or they're going... They go with the detective in and they tell him about what happened to this uh, person and stuff like that. Just, I, I guess that is the imagination of the writer. Yeah, and I think it's probably also is kind of cutting down the number of characters in a story. So, you know, for us, there are 15 people just in my section. There's, you know, probably close to 200 people in my laboratory. So it'd be hard to, you know, do a focused television show about my laboratory. We have to deal with that many characters. Not to mention you know, all the detectives that we deal with, just the Chicago Police Department. Not to mention the detectives from the other police agencies and all the attorneys and stuff. So I think it's, you know, in a television show, it's easier just to have you know your police detective, your private detective, and your one forensic expert, and revolve the show around those limited characters. That's interesting. So, are your books murder mysteries? Or are you not allowed to do that because of your job? I think I, I don't think there are any restrictions on it, but I've never really had an interest in writing like a straightforward uh, murder mystery or um, police procedural kind of story. Um, I did enjoy uh, reading Patricia Cornwell's books when I was growing up. Um, that's probably what got me interested in forensic science in the first place. Um, she writes these stories from the perspective of, med of a medical examiner who's, you know, playing kind of detective on the side as she examines these bodies and examines these cases. Um, but I've, some of my stories involve my knowledge, but it's usually kind of a, a side part of those stories. I always wondered if she got inspired by Quincy, the old TV show Quincy with Jack Lugman. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I'm pretty sure she is or was a medical examiner herself. Uh, I know she kind of drew on both, you know, watching old TV shows and her her day job experience. But I think I'm pretty sure she was a medical examiner. 
I always, I, and I always wondered, because I heard the medical examiners actually thought he did a pretty good job, but, I, I mean, I wouldn't know, but that's what, that's what, at the time, when I was a kid watching Quincy, they used to have newspaper articles about this medical examiner from L.A. thought. <laughs> I need to find a way to get into that job where I'm advising uh, television and movie production of police shows and forensic shows. That would be cool, though, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, so what is your new book about? Um, so my most recent novel is called The Fire's Lantern. It's a choose-your-own-adventure style story. Um, so if your listeners grew up in the 80s or 90s, they're probably familiar with the choose-your-own-adventure series of books, um, which were targeted towards a younger audience. And the premise was basically that you, the reader, are the protagonist in the story. So the story is told in the second person. It addresses the reader as you throughout the story. And at certain points in the story, you will have the choice um, between various paths in the story. So you will decide how the story continues. Is so that the one where they know. like they say, uh, if you believe this, you go to page 258, and if you believe that, you go to page 310 or something like that? Exactly. So if, you're, if it's a detective story, if you believe the murder was Jim, you turn to page 250. If you believe it was Sam, turn to page 260. So the story branches off in a different path, and you, the reader, decide how the story proceeds. Is that fun um, to so do I, that? Oh, go ahead. Is it fun to do that? I definitely enjoyed reading them um, when I was a, a younger reader. Um, and it, it was a challenge, but also fun to write. Um, the, the difficulty is obviously dealing with multiple plot lines and then figuring out how everything is going to kind of weave together and how you're going to lay it out over the course of a, of a novel. Um, but it was, you know, fun to write and something I enjoyed reading, which was really my enjoyment of reading them as a kid was what inspired me to try my hand at doing something and trying to update it for more of a, an adult audience. That's cool. And so this one, your book is for an adult audience. Not, yes. Not kids. What's the age range? Uh, I would say teenagers and not. Um, there's a little bit of mature content in there, but nothing that I think a, a high schooler couldn't handle. Okay. And uh, can you give us any of the information, or is it all top secret what the plot line is? No, no, I'd be, be happy to. <laughs> so there are two main threads in the story. Um, in the first thread, you agree to participate in a research experiment on predicting human behavior. So you go to the left of this laboratory and a scientist puts you in an MRI machine that scans your brain. And while you're in the MRI, you watch this video. And the video tells you that you'll have the, the opportunity to make a choice a week after the brain scan. And it kind of goes through the circumstances of the choice. And at the same time, the machine is reading your brain and trying to predict how you're going to decide in this choice a week later. Um, and the choice involves vast sums of money that you, the reader, have the chance to win. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's fictional money. I'm hoping <laughs> to make money by selling my books and not by paying my readers vast <laughs> sums of money as they make choices in the book. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, in the second thread of 
of the story, you, the protagonist, the reader, are a juror on a murder trial. And the circumstances of the trial are this university professor, um, his wife was murdered during a home break-in. Uh, a week later, the university professor encounters his wife's murder and in the midst of another crime, um, eventually winds up getting a hold of the murderer's gun and, and shoots the murderer dead. So you're on the trial for the university professor and trying to determine whether or not he is guilty of murder. So a little bit of my forensic background comes into play in, in that part of the story. Um, dealing with the, the corporate proceedings and the introduction of evidence and so forth. And then throughout the novel, uh, various kind of subplots branch off of those two main storylines. That sounds like it's really complicated. Does it take you a long time to write it? Um, it definitely took me a lot longer than a straightforward novel, just because it, it was, I had to do a lot of research on um, science and law and, and various subject, other subjects that make appearances in the, in the story. And then it was a challenge to actually lay out and structure the books given the kind of choose-your-own-path nature of the, of the story. Um, so what I ended up doing was drawing out a, a story map, you know, starting from the beginning of the very first choice and then branching out into two paths and then each of those branches each of those paths branching out into two more paths and so forth. And it all looked very nice and neat at the top of the page, and then when I got down to the bottom, there were it's paths mad. swirling and crisscrossing <laughs> all over the place. It was mad, yes. Um, but it was sufficient enough for me to kind of figure out how I wanted everything to be laid out and where each path of the story was going to go within the overall novel. This might um, be a weird question. But is there different characters if you go different pathways, or are they all the same characters for the entire storyline? Um, a lot of the main characters you'll encounter are the same, but as you choose different paths, you will encounter some new, some new characters. Was that hard? Well, I, I think it was. That part wasn't, I think, that difficult um, because it was just like writing, you know, minor characters in a normal story. I think that the difficult part was figuring out, okay, which character should go with what choice you make. Like, why do you choose to go on this path? Should you encounter character A versus character B? Okay. Writing, writing each specific character, I don't think, wasn't as much of a challenge. And what's the basis of the story? What's the, the germ that gives people an idea of what, that get them picking up at the bookstore? Sure. Um, so let's, let's go back to the university research experiment that you're a part of. So basically, you're in this MRI machine, um, and you're watching this video, and the video says that a week from today, you're going to be presented with a choice. So you'll have two boxes in front of you closed. You can't see what's inside. The first box, box A, will definitely contain $1,000. can't see the money in there, but it's the scientist, whoever is speaking in this video, guarantees that the money will be there. The second box, box B, will either contain nothing or $1 million. So you get to keep the contents of your choice of the boxes you choose. Now you have two options. You can either take both boxes, box A and box B, which is the mystery box, or you can take just box B, the mystery box. So 
good so far. Interesting. And while this is going on, okay, go ahead. Uh, no, what? Uh, so you're the character. How do you create a character that's based on the reader? I think that was another big challenge of the story. So how do I make a character that any or at least most readers feel like they can identify with? So my approach was try to make the main character, the one that the reader is inhabiting, be fairly general. So no specific gender, um, no specific age or ethnicity or background, but then give a lot of life to the second char secondary characters that you encounter throughout the story. So make those make those characters have distinct personalities, so it's easy to kind of figure out where you are in the novel, but also bring the story to life. Okay. Interesting. So, um, and is this like a part one, or is it, you said it, this is your newest book, or is there another part to it? I mean, how does that work? Is it like a series? Um, it's sort of a mini-series. So there's this main novel, Spire's Lantern, which is the story I've just described. Um, after I finished writing this and after it was published, I went back and wrote a short prequel novella, which is called The Theory of Anything. And that novella deals with the uni university professor and his wife and the circumstances leading up to the situation in the Friars Lantern. So it's a just short prequel. Um, it's actually available for free on my website if listeners are interested and they want to get a free download of this short book. Cool. Um, so that's kind of the lead into the Friars Lantern. Cool. Um, now I don't have plans for a sequel to the Friars Lantern, um, but that may change, or I, I may end up doing something um, a similar choose your adventure style, but different characters and different stories. So we'll see. I'm not sure what the future holds for this, for this genre. Where can you buy it? Is it online, or is it at your website, or is it at a, a bookstore, or all of the above? Yeah. It's, <laughs> um, it's, it's on Amazon, so I think it's probably the place most readers are familiar with. Um, and they can go directly to Amazon. They can go through my website um, to access it. And if they want to get in touch with you, are you on social media? I am. Yes, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Goodreads. Um, I, get, I can give you my links or if you want to put them in the show notes later, uh, but I'm on all those platforms and I'm always happy to interact with readers. Yeah, we could put it in um, the show notes and we also can put it in my blog and stuff. Just so they could get in touch with you, do you have a website? Yeah, and that's probably the easiest way to kind of get in touch with me and then find out where I am on social media. Uh, my website is greghickeywrites.com. Okay. Uh, the, uh, the sound went out a little bit when you said that part. Could you oh. repeat the website again? Yes, greghickeywrites, writes spelled W-R-I-T-E-S.com. Perfect. Um Thank you, Greg, for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Sherry. I did. I had a great time talking to you. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. Uh -huh.